From Western Sound and ACAST Studios, this is The Score, Season 1, The Bank Robber Diaries. I'm Ben Adair, and this is Episode 13, The Monster. Joe, I have a question about stabbing. You know, you talk a lot about stabbing people, people getting stabbed, everyone having knives in prison. Like, to me, when you stab somebody, you're trying to kill them, but it doesn't sound like stabbing means murder. Like, were, there, were, you, were you, when you were stabbing someone, were you trying to kill them, or were you just trying to hurt them real bad? No, you're, no just trying to kill someone is trying to kill someone. You're aiming for the things that are going to, like, stop them from moving. Okay. You're trying to stab in the lungs, puncture a lung. You're trying to stab to the heart. Guys get stabbed in the eyes because they want to just go straight to the brain to just drop them. Uh-huh. Like, that's trying to kill someone. Stabbing is not trying to kill at all. I had a friend. He had a tactic. He knew where he wanted to stab guys, and he would even say it like, I wasn't trying to kill him. I didn't turn the blade when I was had it in him. I didn't I didn't. I didn't turn and lift up and cut out. You know, he just wanted to puncture him. Interesting thing about anybody who's been stabbed will tell you, like, most guys who've been stabbed, they don't know they're being stabbed. They think they're being punched. If you stab them with something really sharp, it slides in and slides out. It takes them a minute to know they've been stabbed. The adrenaline in the body, the just quick bump, bump, bump. Like, if you punched your fist in your hand, they feel the punch of it and but they don't necessarily feel the sliding of the blade in and that's why you got to keep driving bump 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 moving you know you got to keep hitting them it's not even about trying to kill them you're just trying to really like get to a point where they just collapse and say what the fuck happened like now they're feeling it you know they're starting to bleed and they're starting like so you may have hit something that hurts them so they got to go down but uh the body can take a lot of blows i knew a guy who told me how he stabbed a guy. And the guy he stabbed was really big, bigger than me now. And I'm a big fella. I got a lot of meat on me, a lot of meat. And he said he stabbed him so many times when the guy was on the ground that he had to switch hands because his hands got tired. His stabbing hand got tired. A couple years later, I bumped into the guy who'd been stabbed. And he told me he'd been stabbed 30 times. Jesus. 30 times and lived because he had a jacket on and he got stabbed in the shoulders, he got stabbed in the arms, he got stabbed in the legs. It pierced the skin, punctured, but it wasn't necessarily deep, you know, and it, nothing clearly, uh, nothing super damaging. He was in the hospital for a long time. He had to do, you know, some surgeries. They repaired things, but he lived. 30 times he was stabbed. So it's almost like, it's almost like I could have killed you, but I chose not to, sort of. I chose, yeah. I'm just, I'm just hurt. I just want to humiliate you. Part one, you are not who you say you are. Uh, Joe, you told us last week that when you were released from solitary, you had to act tough to hide the fact that you were actually like changing inside, that you were actively softening yourself. 
Like how how difficult was that to have sort of the the two different personas, one one where you're acting tough and then the one where you're trying to I guess go go soft in a way? Um it was very tough cuz remember guys guys who who walk around like they're ready to stab you it only works if everyone thinks they're going that you will stab them <laughs> you know that's the only way it works and so that means that there's going to be some times possibly where that meant that if i projected like don't fuck with me i'll stab you if i have to there was a part of me was like obviously like Man, I hope this guy doesn't pull my covers here. Because if I have to stab, I'm going to pick up more time. Fuck, you know, it's like you have to. And I had to do that several times. You have, I had to do that to let people think like, don't fuck with that guy. He's just fucking not going to take any of that shit. I remember when I went up to this new prison, rolled up to this new prison. You're supposed to drop off your sheets. Like it was the second day I was there, and then all of a sudden I realized people are walking around with laundry bags. So I go to my unit, ask a guy, wait, man, what's going on with laundry? They're like, oh, yeah, you got to drop it off today before 4 at this thing. It was like, you know, I had like 10 minutes to get there. It's like, oh, shit. So I get my, you know, my sheet and everything like that. And I run over. And as I'm walking, running over where it's supposed to be, there's you know, this, like this room, but they have a door closed. And in the door, this, it was one of those ones where you open the top part and it's like a window, open window kind of thing. And this guy is looking at me. And he sees me coming. I'm, he sees me coming from this. I'm like, hey, man, hold up. And he's slowly closing. The thing. I'm like, what the fuck is it? And he's like slowly closing. It'll get you closer. And he's not holding a click. And he says, man, I'm sorry, man. We're closed. And he walked away. Now, I didn't say nothing there because I'm not going to tell you you can't do that. I'm going to show you you can't do that. I run up to where this guy lives. And I knew he lived on the third tier. I go up there. I walk straight into his cell and I confront him. Like, what the fuck, man? You want something of this? You like? You, you think I'm a punk? You're like, just like, when I and then he's like, get out of my cell. I said, get me out of your cell, man. Let's do this right now, man. I start pointing my finger. You're a, you're a coward. Get me out of your cell. And he was like, no, man. Get your finger out of my face. And I did this thing where I had pointing one finger and then I pointed all my fingers at his face. Like, get my fingers out of your face. Don't be a coward. Let's do this. And he would not get up. Would not get up. And I just lambasted him. You're a fucking punk. I'll take all your shit. Fuck you. I just laid into him. Now, the reason I did that, not only because he, like, he wanted to leave me my laundry, is because I need other people to know, don't fuck with me. I will fucking pull your covers right now. Periodically, I had to do that kind of thing where I pushed up against people so that people would know, like, yeah, you don't want to fucking get that Mexican dude mad, you know? So on the one hand, there's this, like, performative sort of, um, you know, tough guy thing happening. But on the other hand, you're trying, you're, you're sort of going through all your traumas, you're going through all your memories, and you're trying to reconcile those things. Like, what were you doing what were you doing at that period to change yourself, to turn yourself into a better person? Yeah. So here's the thing. So, he yeah, here's the thing. So I had to go back to my cell after I do this guy, you know, I scream at this guy and fucking shame him and call him a coward. And everyone's like, ooh, that motherfucker. I had to come to my cell 
and start reading all this Buddhist stuff that I'm reading about how none of that matters. Like, you know, like it's like, it's not really happening to me. It's a, it's an illusion. And I'm like, I'm reading all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, my body's not saying this illusion. My body's saying, you know, that I need to fucking put holes in this guy eventually. And they're like, no, that's all. You can't be doing this. But that's so I'm like trying to, trying to tell myself that that's all ego. That's all ego. Like you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't take that stuff personally. So I actually have these like real things that are happening. And then I get to try and like say, okay, so I agree with this new teaching that I'm, that I'm learning and stuff. It makes sense to me. I like it. I like, I like it theoretically. It makes sense. I'd already been changing my life a little bit with it. So I want to keep leaning into it, but I would plenty times have an opportunity where something would get kicked up in me and then I would get to like de deconstruct it like okay what happened when I was walking toward him and he did that what did that trigger that reminded me of this that reminded me of that okay mm. so I'm hearing echoes and what's going on when he closed that door I felt rejected by this and that like I was able to start realizing under all these acts of rage or all these acts of indignancy in me basically what they were is it was when the rage would come up it was disguising the fact that I felt wounded that was the big, big fucking lesson. And this kept coming up over and over and over again. I would peel back, peel back. Why do I feel like this? Why did this thing make me get so agitated? Why is, why is this occurring in my body? Now, strategically, I understood periodically I'm going to have to do this because I need to let people know get the state of fuck away. I understand the strategy of it. But there was also in that moment I knew walking through that thing, when that guy closed that thing, my, I got heated, heated. I got so drove that I held on to it for an hour. So when they opened the bar, I just ran right upstairs hoping I could throw him out a window. I was like so mad. So like there was legit things for me to have to figure out because I didn't want to stab him. I didn't want to stay in prison. I didn't want, I wanted to go home and I wanted not only to go home, I wanted to be peaceful. And I wanted not, it wasn't just I wanted to not rob banks. I wanted to try and create a life in which I could be um, uh, peaceful. So I had to figure out how to not get to a point where I want to stab people and put holes in them. So, um, yeah, I would go back and I would deconstruct. And being able to develop that distance from the moment is like, okay, I'm going to be able to get out of here. I'm going to be able to stop poking, poking men. I mean, that sounds weird. That sounds weird. But I'm going to be able to stop putting holes in men. Hmm. So you thought about how you were getting offended by people and you thought about the, the actions that you were taking did you start thinking about other people in your life who had traumatized you? I mean, I'm thinking mostly of your dad. Like, how did this realization about yourself start affecting the way that you thought about your dad? Yeah. So, you know, when I started investigating my wounds, it was like they all these old child wounds would come up, right? Like, uh, I feel, I see. It's, I'm, I'm remembering this episode from my childhood. That's where it all went back to. Like when I would say, what's the wound underneath the anger? What's the wound that anger is disguising? It would always go back to something early in my childhood. And I was like, okay, so I know I'm not like a freak. I didn't feel like this was so novel to me. I felt like, oh, this is everybody in here. So when I started looking at my childhood and understanding a lot of my shit, not only now, it was the next step was like, oh, so all that shit I did in the past when I had that conversation with my girlfriend on the phone, when I did this thing here, when I fought with that person there, I could start looking at all these stories in my past. 
And then I was like, oh, shit, my dad. He had a really shitty childhood just like me. And I started looking at that and like, I knew my dad's past. And when he was young, my grandfather used to put him in a chicken coop. My grandfather really was mad at my, it's treated my dad like, like he was the worst kid. He had some deep animosity in my dad. You learn about it through AA that there's in a family, there's always this one kid who gets everything, all the shit gets dumped on. And my, that was my dad and his family. Um, he, and he, and, you know, he, he struggled growing up, um, with racism. And, um, I think my grandfather may have thought that my dad wasn't his even. So my dad got treated very badly. Humiliated, humiliated, humiliated over and over which is why he wanted to get out of the house at 16 to marry my mother that's when I was born he just wanted to get the hell out so I knew he had been treated terribly brutally and then he grew up and he did the same thing and in all my life I had thought my dad was a monster people would even tell me man that dude's a monster and I liked thinking of him as a monster because then I could, I could think about the bad things I wanted to do to him because I made him into this object. He's a monster. He's not a person. He's like the other. He's not us. He's not like me. But when I examined my life and I started seeing all the bad things that I had done and I understood where they came from, and I was able to look at my father and say, oh, he's doing these because of his wounds, his early humiliation, his early trauma. He's no different than me. Then this monster who I now understood was this little boy who had been brutalized and humiliated and traumatized and behaved badly. He wasn't a monster. Yes, he did monstrous things, but he was no longer a monster to me. He was a kid who didn't ask for any of the shit that happened to him. And then it was like, oh, fuck. I was a kid. I didn't ask for any of it. I didn't ask for the beatings. I didn't ask to witness the trauma that he inflicted on my brother. I didn't ask for the divorce that, ha that I had to see and the trauma of that. I didn't ask for the death of my mother. I didn't ask for any of the, none of it, none of it. And it happened and it shaped me. And I grew up and I did monstrous things, but I wasn't a monster. Being able to, to have an understanding of my father, to give him compassion that gave me that phrase, oh, well then he's not a monster. He did monstrous things, he's not a monster came back to me and I could appropriate for myself and say, oh, yeah, I'm not, I did monstrous things, but I'm not a monster either. It gave me like this tag, this tagline that I could remind myself when I would start feeling super shameful that, which was, you know, really, really heavy on those early days because I just felt like, fuck it, I'm going to always fuck up. I'm just a, I'm a terrible, evil person. I might as well just kill myself because I'm going to fail at this thing to try and get better too. 
So I needed help. And that line, I did monstrous things when I'm not a monster, just like I gave it to my dad. I was able to use it for myself. And that thing, poof, that gave me some rich propulsion in the in in a direction away from from shame. Just compassion for myself, you know. But I first extended it to my dad, and then it came back to me, which I thought was interesting—the kind of ricochet thing, you know. We'll be right back. Part two, change on the outside. Lisa Perez and Paul, Joe's brother, kept up with Joe in prison. And of all the people we've heard from on this podcast, they're the ones who most closely observed the changes in Joe. During the time that he was in Lompoc, I was writing him probably four times a week. I was sending him magazines, uh, books, uh, at least once a week. I visited him every other weekend. No, I visited Joe a few times, probably three three or four times, I think. It was really, really strange to see someone that you know all your life as a certain way, and then you go and visit him in this certain setting, and this setting doesn't allow for him to, to exhibit any thing that portrays the person that you know. He had to have a certain look in prison that he couldn't, you know, that he, he had to be strong in prison. I wanted him to share with me how he felt about what he did to those people, not so much the money behind it, because there's a lot of other consequences behind just robbing a bank. There were times that those subjects were constantly coming up. And so I want to see whether or not his perception of maybe his answer six years ago would be different to something today. Towards the end of his stay in prison, Joe started corresponding with the writer and essayist Richard Rodriguez. At the time, Richard was a regular on the PBS NewsHour, which was one of the few TV shows that prisoners could watch. Joe admired him, admired the way he used words. He decided to write him a letter. The man who wrote me a letter years ago in prison uh, was a man who already was pretty focused on the future he wanted. And he was determined to get out. And Joe wanted some kind of correspondence. At first, I, I, I sort of shrugged him off. So the letters became quite early his seduction of me. Not sexual, but, but uh, topical, I think. Uh, the things that he told me were so fresh and so odd that I was, of course, seduced. And uh, I think in that process, Joe realized his power over a listener, another writer, um, was, was substantial. He, he, tell, he tells me, for example, about the stench of money, that one night after he robbed a number of banks, he, he had these huge leather satchels under his bed, and he tried to get to sleep. And about five minutes after he, he was on his bed, 
he begins to smell money, the, the, the stench of it. I didn't know that. I've read lots and lots of novels, and no one has ever described the stench of money. How, how would you describe your correspondence then? Suddenly there was these letters, usually on Tuesdays, of about 12 to 15 pages, handwritten, with this very, very tiny script. Um, and it was as though he used the occasion of these letters to concentrate his energies away from the noise of the prison, away from the fact that he was in prison, um, even uh, in, in some cases that he was in solitary. Um, that that tiny script, rarely was a word crossed out, because I think what he did when he made a mistake is that he wrote the whole page over again. He had no, he had no typewriter, uh, no, no access to a computer. So it was this painstaking um, uh, script that he sent me every week. It was like getting a letter from a gold miner in California in the 1850s. That, those letters were so intense and so considerate and so well-written uh, because they were written with the sense that at last my reader is, is reading my words, despite all. And I think that's, that was really quite extraordinary to, to get those letters. I saved them. I saved all those letters, and I, I eventually gave them back to him after he got out of prison. And when Stanford University uh, recently bought my papers, I suggested to him that, um, that he send me back the, pa the letters and I would put them in the archive, um, in my archives at Stanford. Uh, but by that time, Joe had gotten rid of them, partly, I think, as an exorcism. Um, when he ended the correspondence, that is, when he got out of prison, I think I got one long letter, and then we descended into the world of email. Hmm. Hmm. What did you get out of the correspondence? It was— um, it was so original. His thinking is so original. When I, when I, um, when I, he, I didn't want to see him. I tell him I didn't need to see him. I didn't, I don't want to meet this guy with tattoos on his eyes and all the rest of it. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm happy the correspondence was of use to you. And it was to me uh, during a period in which my father was dying, which he was describing to me his own difficult relationship to his father how one night his father almost killed his brother and so forth. Um, I, I, hadn't a real, I, do, I didn't have a literary relationship like that before. I've had some extraordinary correspondences over the years from Supreme Court justices, from wonderful editors, from famous people, but they're not, they're not letters that get exchanged over three years of this kind of density um, where he would tell me things about fear and violence I've I've lived on on some of Joe Loria's stories now for years. You mentioned that Joe Joe would say some things about uh, fear. You said about family. Uh, you you just uh, mentioned language. Are there other sort of quintessential things that you learned from corresponding with Joe? Well, I learned that I'm not a, I'm not a criminal, um, and I learned that I I have a uh, I remember when he was just about to be released. I gave him an idea for a piece that would have been spectacular if he had been able to write it. I said, why don't you spend the last day or two of your imprisonment uh, writing a letter to the man who is going to occupy your cell? Uh, the things that you learned, the frustrations you felt, the way you survived, and so forth. 
Well, Jim Lawyer couldn't write that piece. And because he didn't see himself in that world, his his um, his literary sophistication, his diction, his his ambition to be a writer, all those had already taken him out of prison. They were not. He didn't. He didn't see himself in the other guys' lives. Uh, and so the idea of writing a letter to a loser who ends up in his cell was so contrarian to to the to his haughty sense of himself. I say that with with with, you know, not intending to to embarrass him, but there was that haughtiness in him. He did not see himself as the equal of those men. He was better. He and this is what I'm saying. He'd already he'd already somehow in his own mind, maybe before he before he got to prison, he'd already uh, transcended prison. He was not another loser in uh, in in solitary. He was writing a letter to another writer. Joe started calling me more frequently once he knew that he would be going to be getting out. I think Joe kind of like wanted to start setting things up. Um, and he had changed. He had changed. He was no longer this vitriolic person spewing negativity. He would be thankful that I would write. He'd be thankful for the visit. He would be... A lot of poetry came out in him that he would send to me. And um, I keep all of that in a special place. Also, I still have all those letters, and I still have all the poetry. The last few years in prison, he had really changed his life. He was he was getting involved in um, Buddha. He was getting involved in um, some things that you could tell were just meaningful to him. He, he would say things like, you know what, I want to just live a simple life where I'm a contributing member of society. And that's how I can show that I have changed. When we would look back at the pictures in prison, he would be like, you know, you were always the one that could make me smile. You were the, always the one that, you know, I'm like, come on. I said, I understand we're getting our photo now, but I need to see dimples in this picture. And he's like, and he would start laughing. And he's like, he goes, I'm not supposed to be laughing in prison. And sometimes I don't even know I'm here because I'm with you and we're having such a great time. We talked long hours about what change meant to people and how if you don't believe in change in others, then you don't believe in change in yourself. So I wanted change in Joe because I also wanted change in myself. Joe was changing. But how much and for how long were questions he couldn't answer yet. Part three, Last Day's End. Joe, as you got closer and closer to release, how were you feeling? Were you nervous? Were you scared? Were you excited? What What were you feeling? <laughs> Mm. 
I was feeling crazy. When I was getting ready to get out of prison, I felt super fucking crazy. What do you mean crazy? Uh, um, because of the anxiety. You know, the anxiety of getting out and the helplessness. Like my brother said he might get me a job and I need, I was going to need a job. What are you doing, Paul? What's going on? What are you doing? And he was just like, ah, man, I'm working out. Don't worry about it. And you're like, ah, I need to know. I need to know. I was like you're bothering everyone, just calling them all the time, trying to get the facts of it, trying to control things, you know, trying just human stuff. The anxiety and helplessness. I had never done well with helplessness before. I didn't realize, you know, that Joe was on a path of, you know, self-awareness, self-development, that he could put his violent instincts, maybe not behind him, but in check. This is an inmate who spent some time with Joe after Joe was transferred to spend his last couple years in prison at Norfolk Prison in Massachusetts. He doesn't want us to use his name because he's left his prison days behind him. So we'll call him Sean. I didn't realize there was an awakening. I certainly see it now. Um, I, I think it, it, it took place um, toward the end of his incarceration and then the first few years after, and he's grown as a person even way beyond that. Um, but I didn't see it as an awakening in him. I did, I did always feel, though, that he could speak very openly about painful parts of his life, and, and he, he could also share his poetry, which was really, a lot of that was about you know things in his life that were very personal to him. Sean met Joe on his first day in prison. He'd been sentenced on drug charges. Joe came walking down the tier, and he looked like he was out of, like, Lompoc Central Casting. Looked like Fidel Castro had those eyes that burn right through. You know, his arms full of something. He walks up to me, and he says uh, something friendly, um, but low-key, like, hey, I saw you just came in, and I have a bunch of magazines if you'd like to read them. And I was eager to read something because, you know, I was, like, bored to death. And they were New Yorker magazines. And, I mean, some guys, you know, maybe would have been, like, Playboy magazine, you know, which is cool. But to me, New Yorker magazine, that was hitting the jackpot. Sean remembers Joe as an intense but low-key guy on the tier. Says he minded his own business, but could also take care of things when needed. First night there, there was a freaking racket in the cell next door. These two dumb guys were just, you know, bragging about their petty crimes and all their stupid shit. And next day, Joe says to me, I was fucking guys, you know, they're, they're, they're too noisy. So I want to talk to them, ask them to try to quiet down. So he asked, I think, yeah, I think he asked him to quiet down. Next night, they're still making a fucking racket. So then he's like, he tells me, look, I'm going to wait till they're like dead asleep at six o'clock in the morning after count when the doors are open. And then I'm going to go in there and I'm going to confront them. And they never made another peep after that. Like, you know, not a peep out of these guys. So I don't know what Joe did when he went in there, but he was a deliberate, methodical guy, flew under the radar completely. Uh, he gave people a wide berth, but narrow slack. Norfolk Prison offered inmates different educational opportunities. Students and professors from nearby Boston University would come. Sean and Joe got to know each other in a poetry class. We started taking some classes together, some of the Boston University classes we were in together. And we joined a poetry club uh, that met, I think, once a week with a professor from BU. 
And so I could tell from having classes with him that he was very well read. Um, I think, you know, through the poetry, you know, in, in poetry class, we would read poetry. I, I have no poetic ability, so I would pick a poem, classic poem or something, read it. And then most other people would write their poetry. And, and much of it was pretty crude, but really heartfelt, you know, for inmates talking, you know, the poetry. Joe's was good, but, but it, was, it was much better. And, and he also had, he, he displayed a knowledge of like uh, Christian or Catholic history, um, you know, church teachings. Um, he could divine the meaning in classic literature or poetry that always escaped me. It was obvious that probably from our classes at BU and the poetry group that he was very well educated and very intelligent. I mean, really intelligent. Um, and so I admired his ability to be open in an environment where people are, you know, generally not open with each other. So maybe, you know, it was probably part of his maturing, you know, as a human being. Um, but I didn't really see that. Well, I also saw a side of him that was just like, you know, I, 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 I never really thought, hey, uh, let's make a bet. Is Joe going to go back in prison after this one or not? Or is he even going to get out? You know, it's like he's going to kill somebody and stay in there. Um, but I wouldn't have necessarily had high confidence that, Joe was going to get out and find an occupation that would satisfy him. You know, and he was trying. He, he was, and one of the things I admire about him, he was like really trying to go down a path that wouldn't lead back there. And, and it's not easy, especially when you first when you first get out and you're used to people uh, giving you a certain amount of respect, you know, and that the general public doesn't, you know. To me, it was like getting off a train in Grand Central Station and you got a thousand people on the train and they're all pushing you, stepping on your feet. Like in prison, you know, people are either, either they're after you for a reason or they're going to give you some space and some respect. You just like, it's not easy making that transition because you still have some frustration, hostility, you know, and people don't understand you. Maybe you're a ticket time bomb, you know, where they just don't have respect for people, don't realize, you know, you're stepping into a man's space, you know, it's not right. That's a challenge to deal with when you get out. I'm going to tell you a story that's one of the most embarrassing stories of my life. And I got a bunch of great embarrassing stories. But this one is embarrassing because it's in the post-change, Joe. Mm. <laughs> well, this one morning, I go to call Lisa, Lisa Perez. You know, we were, I was hoping she was going to be there when I got out, and we were planning and stuff. And But, you know, we were having, it was stressful for her, too, super stressful. And then I call her and, you know, collect call from, you know, whatever. It, like, it's ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing. And um, she doesn't answer, actually. There's no collect call thing. It's just ringing and ringing and ringing, and I'm waiting for the collect call to come in. But ring, 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 ring. And I would go to her message. And um, and then I would hang up. And I would walk away 20 feet, and I'd be like, you know what? It sounded like she was ready. I almost sounded like I heard, hello? Like like a last desperate picking it up. And I was like, I think I heard. She may have been in the shower while I was doing it. So she just jumped out and she got it. So let me call her back. So I called her back. And uh, ring, 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 ring. And I just kept thinking of a reason why she might have just barely missed the call. <laughs> and I did this like four or five five times, man. And I just like walked away thinking like, what the fuck is wrong with you, man? What the fuck is wrong with you? This is not, this is not who you are. This is not who you are. 
but apparently it was who I was then because <laughs> I was so helpless and so wanting to control things and wanting to feel assured and just whatever, man, that I started going a little kooky. Did you talk to any people who had made the transition from prison back to, to non-institutionalized life? Like, had you, had you sort of talked to other people who may have made it and, and seen what they had gone through? No. No? No, it's a good question, man. You know what? No. Everyone I knew had told me what happened when they got out and then fucked up and came back. Yeah. I had that. <laughs> I was trying to do something, even when I talked about changing, most people talked about not drinking and or not robbing and not, not using drugs. And I was like, I want peace. Hmm. Even the way I talked about it wasn't, I don't want to commit crime. It was, I want to go past, I'm way past that not committing crime. I want, I've, my life has been so chaotic. What I pine for, what I yearn for is to figure shit out so I can have peace in my life. I want peace. That's it. Ultimately, that's it. And, uh, that nobody talked like they just want to be. <laughs> they just figured our, our, sh our lives are shit. We're going to always have a shitty life. Um, well, I just don't want to fucking come back. But I was like, no, I'm way past that. I want I want something bigger than that. So uh, I didn't know anybody who had achieved staying out, much less peace. Sean, who we heard from earlier in the segment, said that he didn't think you were going to make it when you first got out. Did you think you were going to make it? Were you worried about making it? Well, yeah. I mean, of course, I was not sure. What I was trying to do now was... This is an important point to make. It comes off the stabbing argument. I had witnessed that the tools that I was using, the tools I was using to reframe everything that was going on around me had allowed me to look at men on the tier and say, the only reason they don't have holes in them right now is because of me, <laughs> my decision. They've offended me. I was offended, and I went and did a bunch of work, and I'm not the guy I used to be. Because the guy I used to be, I would have beat the shit out of them. I would have pounded something on them. I would have stabbed them. I would have hurt them badly. So I was saying to myself, I've stopped that. So that gave me some confidence that I was figuring something out. I just needed to go out to the world and practice it and see if I could implement it. But I did know that I had a huge history of failure. So there was that hanging over me. That's sort of Damocles, like, okay, it's just a matter of time when you're going to fail. Do you think after all that, thinking about it, preparing for it, getting ready to get out, were you ready to get out? Like, was it, were you prepared? for how hard it was going to be? No. No. This is episode 13 of The Bank Robber Diaries, The Monster, season one of The Score, from Western Sound and ACAST Studios. Executive producers are me, Ben Adair, Joe Loya, Veronica Taylor, and Susie Warhurst. Producers are Cameron Kell, Haley Fox, and Stephanie Aguilar. Original composition and sound design is by Dan Leone. 
Production assistance comes from Annette Runhell. Mixing is by Johnny Vince Evans and Eric Romani. Next up is episode 14, Fatal Peril. Stay tuned. <laughs>